Our sermon text today comes from 2 Chronicles 1, 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in all Israel, the heads of fathers' houses. And Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. And that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting, so to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. You may be seated. that we have desperate need of your mercies and your grace. We come as broken sinners who are confident that our Father in heaven loves us. We know that your spirit has been given to us to cleanse us and redeem us and make us like your son. I pray that this Next time that we'll spend looking at your word, we part of that process to make us more like Christ, to found our hope on his deliverance of us. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When I was in high school, the pastor of the church that I attended was a, a longtime pastor, and when he retired when I was in college, I think he had been at the church for over 25 years, so a long legacy that he left. Um, and it was, it was a large church, maybe two or 3,000 people, but he's an incredibly humble and gentle man, the type of man that when you talk to him, it felt like you were the only person in the room. 
you know, even though he pastored a large, successful, quote-unquote, church, he never put on kind of you know, presumptuous or arrogant at time for people. Um, I had become a Christian shortly before we came to this church in my ninth grade year. Um, and so while my family, I grew up in a Christian family, so I grew up going to church, he was really the first pastor I listened to, the first sermons I would listen to, because God had changed my heart and given me desire to know him. And, and, and in this pastor, there was a, I was given a, a model of what preaching could and should look like, as he would faithfully, ex- expositionally preach through books of the Bible. Um, he was just a, a, a very faithful preacher. He also had a heart for missions, and the church would give 25% of their giving every year to, to international missions. And in fact, my older sister is a missionary in Macedonia, and Calvary Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania is her sending church, and they are very generous in supporting her. So he wasn't a perfect man, but he left a, a model for what it means to be a faithful pastor. And when he retired, he left a model for the church to look for in their future pastors. This is similar to what's happening in Chronicles, where, again, Chronicles is written to returning exiles. It's been a hundred years since they've had a king, and since they've even been a nation. And Chronicles is trying to remind them what's important. And as he tells the story of Solomon and David, part of what he's doing is giving a model for what future kings of Israel should look like. This is what they should be marked by. This is what they should care about. This is what their leadership should look like. But what's interesting, though, is, is, is not only is David and Solomon kind of examples head up, held up for the future kings of Israel. They're not just examples. The chronicler treats them as if they're ideals. None of their sins are mentioned in Chronicles. And what we'll find is that not only is, is the chronicler laying out examples for what future kings should look like, but in the end he's pointing us forward to the one true ideal king, Jesus Christ. So here, the main point of what we're looking at this morning is that Solomon is a model king for Israel, but he's also pointing us forward to the true king, Jesus. Now our outline, first is going to be Solomon as a model king in his worship, and second, Solomon as a model king in his wisdom, and then finally third, Solomon as foreshadowing the true ideal king, King Jesus. So again, to give a recap, if you remember from Last week, David has finished his reign. He's come to the end of his life. And in preparing to, to pass on the kingship to, da- to, sorry, to Solomon, his son, he gives Israel charge. He charges Israel, and then he charges Solomon. And the, and the gist of it is seek God. In this transition time, as you're looking what's next, first and foremost, seek the Lord in all that you do. And then what we didn't read, but how First Chronicles ends in chapter 29, verse 22, and they made Solomon the son of David king. And they anointed him as prince for the Lord and Zadok as priest. And so the kingship is transferred to Solomon. And again, the big question as we come to Solomon, is he going to be a king like David? Or is he going to be a king like Saul? Is he going to be a king that leads the people to the Lord? Or is he going to be a king that does not lead the people to the Lord? That's the question as we enter the beginning of Solomon's reign. Look at verses 1 to 6 with me. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom... And the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges and to all the leaders in all Israel and heads of fathers' houses. And Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. 
Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was there before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly sought it out. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and he offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. And before we get to the meaning of this text, I want to have a couple observations to point out. Again, verse 1 recaps the end of First Chronicles. Solomon has become king. His kingdom's established. He's not trying to fight it out with other competing heirs. Solomon is king of Israel. As he begins his kingship, the first thing he does is he calls a religious assembly, a worship assembly. He doesn't go on a military campaign. He doesn't go on a building campaign. The first thing he does is he calls a worship assembly which is significant, as we'll get into in a second. But I want to explain verses 3 to 5, because the chronicler includes these seemingly random details about, well, they went to Gibeon because the tent was there, but the ark was somewhere else, and it's like, why, why do we need to know all this stuff? And what's happening is, is, is when Solomon decides to offer sacrifices at Gibeon, it could seem like he is directly disobeying, disobeying commandments that were given in Deuteronomy where God had told the people of Israel, don't just offer sacrifices anywhere. You can only offer them where I tell you to, at the place that I have appointed. And at this point, the place has been established. David had said on Mount Moriah, this is where the temple is going to be. This is where offerings should be offered. And so it could seem like Solomon is breaking these commandments. And so the reason that the chronicler is giving these, again, seemingly random details, is he's trying to emphasize that the movement of the tabernacle, the tabernacle was the worship structure that preceded the temple, the tent with the ark and the altar where sacrifices were made. The moving of the tabernacle from Gibeon to Jerusalem is in process, right? So the ark of the covenants already been moved there. David moved it there in First Chronicles. But the actual tent of the meeting, and in fact, the altar where sacrifices were made is still at this other place. And so the, the chronicler is just explaining that to us. They may not seem like insignificant details, but that's why it's there. But the emphasis in this text is on Solomon's leadership. Look at this with me. First, Solomon leads people. His first act of leadership is to lead them to worship the Lord. Again, you know, we know how the story goes, but Israel wouldn't. And their question is, is Solomon going to be one who's going to lead us to worship God or lead us away from God? And so it's significant that Solomon, his first act of leadership as a king, is he leads them in an assembly to make sacrifices to the Lord at Gibeon. He is a true son of David. He is not like Saul. And in fact, what we're seeing here is Solomon listened when David gave him his charge. When he told him, Solomon, seek the Lord with all your heart. Seek him willingly. And here we see Solomon is, he listened. And he's doing that. He leads the people to worship God. But more than that, he leads people in his zeal and worship. This isn't like a perfunctory act for Solomon, like he's just going to go through the motions. But again, He's, he's leading with all his heart. It says in verse 6 that he offered a thousand burnt offerings. You don't need a seminary degree to realize that's a lot of burnt offerings. A lot of dead animals. This is just showing Solomon's enthusiasm. It's kind of like the worship leader when he's just feeling the moment. He's like, let's do another, let's do another run through this chorus. Like, okay. Let's run through it again. You're like, okay. Let's run through it again. You're like, wow, this guy's really feeling this right now. That's what Solomon is doing. And he's just, this is an overflow. God, you said offer sacrifices. I'm going to offer all my sacrifices right here. It's not just leading in the actions. He's leading in his zeal for God, his genuine love and affection for the Lord. And this is how God had commanded his people to worship him, through sacrifices. Solomon genuinely loves the Lord. 
Again, this is serving as an example for what kings should be like, a people who will lead God's people to worship the Lord. Now, we don't have kings, but this is giving us an example of what all leaders within God's people should look like and what their primary function is. Obviously, as a pastor, my primary function is to lead people to worship God, but every leader within the church is true of. So if you're leading an audiovisual, we praise God for you. But your goal is not just to execute an excellent service, although hopefully that happens. The primary goal is leading people to worship God. Or if you're serving as a greeter, or you're serving in nursery, or as a youth leader, or as a deacon, the primary goal for all of those is to lead people to worship God. Now, this is why that matters. The stakes are incredibly high. Because there's nothing more important than life than God. There's no reality or truth more important than God, and nothing more important than how we relate to God. There are many important things in life. Nothing comes close to the fundamental reality of who God is and how we know him. And that means that every position of leadership Every position of service has infinite worth. There are no mundane, unimportant acts of service or leadership within the church because all of them, in some way or other, are either leading us or facilitating us to be able to enter into worship of the true and living God. The goal of all leadership within a church is to lead people to worship God. And so all positions of leadership are incredibly important. I want to give an additional observation, though, before we move on from this model, as, uh, Solomon's model as a, a king who leads people to worship. And this is on the importance of assemblies in First and Second Chronicles. It's interesting. Um, so first, David calls an assembly when he tries to bring the ark to Jerusalem. When that fails, three months later, he calls another assembly, which is a gathering of God's people. Then he calls another assembly when he's passing on the throne to Solomon. Here, Solomon's first act as king is to call an assembly. And as we walk through the second chronicles, it'll be, again, assemblies after assemblies. And all these assemblies, these aren't just like business meetings or political meetings. They're worship assemblies. In chronicles, there, there, there are allusions to Israelites worshiping individually on their own. But the vast majority of worship that's emphasized or described by the chronicler is the worship that happens in the gathering of God's people in these assemblies. This shows us the importance of assemblies. And it gets even more interesting. Hang with me here. There was an, a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was translated about 200 years before Jesus. It's called the Septuagint. When the apostles were alive and kicking, they oftentimes would use the Septuagint because they'd be more familiar with Greek than they would be with Hebrew. And the Greek, the, the Greek translation of this Hebrew word assembly is a Greek word ecclesia, which is the New Testament word for church. This is the word assembly. It's the, the translation of this word assembly is a word that the apostles chose to describe the New Testament church. The assembling of God's people has always been a crucial part of what it means to follow God. And the reason it's important to remind ourselves of this is because we live in such a hyper-individualistic culture. And what that means is that the default for us will always be to imagine my relationship primarily between me and God or me and Christ. And there's cert that's certainly true. 
But the emphasis in the Bible is actually on the gathering of God's people, not on a personal relationship, not, not, per, not an individual. It's always personal. But it's not in the individualistic relationship. So it's just helpful because we know our tendency is going to be to individualize our faith. It's just helpful to remember the model for worshiping God has always been in the assembly, all the way back even 500, 600 years before Christ. So here's, so that's, so, and, and as we go through, it'll be interesting, as we chart the decline of Israel, when there's renewal, God does it through assemblies. We'll see that as well. So Solomon, he, he stands as a model for future kings in his worship, and his leading God's people to worship, and his own personal zeal for worship. But second, Solomon serves as a model in his wisdom. Let's look at verses 7 to 13. And in that night, God appeared to Solomon, and he said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours which is so great? And God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. But I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings who have had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon gives an example of wisdom. Now what's exemplary about this? Is it the miraculous event of God making Solomon wise? No. We can't control if God gives us a supernatural gift of discernment and understanding and wisdom. Where's the example in this? Well, I think a lot of times when we think of Solomon, because we know this story, it's just such an unusual story. Most of us probably have heard it before. But I wonder if maybe unthinkingly we kind of think of this as like Solomon was like this young and experienced fool, and then God made him wise, and he like had this, you know, he became a different person. But what we're seeing is, is really what God is doing is he's taking a man who's already, a young man who's showing him profound wisdom already, and he gives him more wisdom. And so what's exemplary here is not God making Solomon wise. Again, we can't, we can't model that. That's God's decision and the gifts he gives. But what's exemplary is that Solomon knows he needs wisdom. It's exemplary that he asks for wisdom. And Solomon shows his wisdom in this way in two different ways. First, he shows wisdom in what he wants most. And what's strange about the story, right? So God is almost like a genie in this story. He shows up, you may have one wish. What do you want? And it's just bizarre because it, it sounds like something out of a Disney movie. But it's actually profound what God is doing because when he comes to Psalm and he says, you have one wish, what do you want? What he's getting at is what, is, what does Solomon want most in life? If you remember when David gave his charge to Solomon, he said, Solomon, seek God with all you have. Why? Because the Lord is one who searches the hearts. And he knows what goes on in a man's heart. And so when God comes to Solomon and says, what do you want? He's drawing out of Solomon. What is, what is deep in Solomon's heart? What does Solomon really want most of all? He reveals what Solomon was in Solomon's heart. 
And more than riches, more than power, more than long life, Solomon wants to be faithful to God and the task that God has given him of being king. There's wisdom in this desire. And the number one desire being to please the Lord. Francis Schaeffer was um, kind of intellectual, I don't know, writing in the 60s and 70s. I read him a lot when I was in high school. He was very influential for me. And I can't find where this was. I'm actually not not 100% sure this is Schaefer, um, but I think it is. And he said, "There's, there's great despair when a person runs after the many things of life, whether it's success or money or relationships or happiness. There's great despair in that because the vast majority of us do not achieve what we want to run after. The kind of picture we have of the ideal life, none of us are ever able to achieve it, and there's despair in that. But then Schaefer says there's even greater despair, though, for those who do catch what they're running after, for those who achieve whatever that golden dream is for them, because when they catch it, they realize it wasn't what they thought it was. When they catch it, they realize that what they were running after was something like the Wizard of Oz. If you know that old movie where there's this like mythic divine figure kind of orchestrating everything and they finally get to the Wizard of Oz who's supposed to have all the answers and it's just this fat, dumpy man behind a mask. And when we finally catch those, those things we're running after that we think are going are, are gonna to give us meaning and purpose and happiness, when we finally catch them, we realize they're, not, they're false. They're not able to bear the weight of the human heart. And so to love anything more than God is not only sin, sin of idolatry, but it's also foolishness. Because nothing besides God can bear the weight of the human soul. And here we see Solomon's great wisdom because Solomon wants God more than anything else. So Solomon first shows his wisdom and what he desires. But second, Solomon shows his wisdom in just knowing that he needs wisdom. In one sense, we could define wisdom like this. Wisdom is knowing that you don't know. Right? Like it's, it's knowing, being aware of all the things that you don't know. In one sense, you could say that's wisdom. Folly, on the other hand, is not knowing what you don't know. So about five years ago, I was foolish enough to try to cut down a tree in my front yard. It was a big tree. It was probably about that big around, but it was, it was dead and rotted out. And I spent hours on YouTube. How do you cut down a tree with a chainsaw? It's like, I know how to do this. But I didn't realize that the inside of the tree was so rotted. The way you cut down a tree and it doesn't fall and kill someone is you, you, you cut a wedge out and you basically make like a hinge. And so you should be able to tell like, okay, I'm going to have the tree fall this way. Well, I want the tree to fall this way. And literally as I'm chopping it down, it falls like a 90 degree angle the other way. And it still makes my blood run cold because it could have killed either me or my pregnant wife who was helping me, uh, who was pregnant with Caleb. And the thing is, I didn't realize is that the inside of the tree was so rotted that you couldn't make a hinge out of it. It was going to fall anywhere. But I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know that I didn't know anything about cutting down trees, and so I was a fool. Wisdom would have been saying, well, you know what? This is worth $500 to not kill me and pay someone who actually knows what they're doing. Wisdom is oftentimes knowing what you don't know. Which, by the, by the way, is why wisdom is tied to humility in the Bible. Now, if this is true about cutting down trees, if it's true about human affairs, how much more true is it about how much more true is it for when we approach God, knowing how much we don't know? For those of us who are theologically minded, like to read big books, or those of us who've been Christians for a long time, 
There can be a tendency to say, well, I've, I've known God my whole life. What else is there for me to learn? I've learned it all, or as much as I can learn. Or I've, I've, I've read my systematics, I have my categories, I understand God. And the temptation there is to come to a place where we think we've really comprehended God. Like we've plumbed the depths. We've, cert, cert, we've sought it all out. But there's an ancient theologian named Gregory of Nazianzus. You probably have not heard that name before, but you should. He was really important uh, when the church hammered out its doctrine of the Trinity. He was one of the major theologians of that time. But he actually comments on this. This is cool. This was written 1,700 years ago, guys, by a Christian just like us in a very different context, commenting on this exact passage. And this is what he says. He says, Thus Solomon, who is the wisest of all people, the more he entered into the depth, the more dizzy he became, and he declared the furthest point of wisdom to be the discovery of how very far off it was from him. Gregory of Nazianzus realized the more we approach God and we learn about him and grow in our understanding of him, we also begin to realize how much more of God there is and how far we will ever be from from fully comprehending a God who is infinite and incomprehensible, not incomprehensible, not that we can't know anything about God, but we will never plumb the depths of a God who is far beyond what we can understand. And so Solomon shows wisdom in just knowing that he needs wisdom and knowing that there's much that he does not know or understand. And so in this, Solomon acts as a a model for all future kings of Israel, model of his zealous worship of the Lord and leading God in worship, his model and his wisdom, the desires of his heart. And having humility. Well, how how does this apply to our lives? Well, I mean, a question we can ask is, what does it mean for us to be wise, like Solomon is wise? And I think the first thing it calls us to do is examine our own hearts. If wisdom is, is loving God above all things, if wisdom has to do with the desires of our hearts, then what do we desire most? If God came to you at night in a dream and said, ask me one thing and I'll give it to you, what, what would it be? We live in a materialistic culture. This is one thing I've been, I've been reading some books that make me think about this and make me realize how materialistic our culture is and what comes along with that is consumerism, the idea that I just need to buy more things and the next thing I buy, that, that's what life is about, is just acquiring new things and, 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 and so we live life in this way and, I, and, and it's not a question of like how materialistic, or it's not a question, sorry, of if we're materialistic, it's like how much of this is influencing us because we swim in this like a fish in the ocean. Or maybe, you know, maybe for us what we want most is comfort. Um, when I lived in Washington, D.C., hopefully I don't offend anyone when I say this, but when I lived in Washington, D.C., the rush hour was started at 5 p.m. and it continued until 9 p.m. People just worked crazy hours. What struck me when I moved to Louisville is that the rush hour is from 3 to 5. It's a four-hour shorter workday. Now, here's the thing. The, the, the kind of false gods of Washington, D.C. are power and ambition, and so people drive themselves to work crazy hours maybe the false gods of Louisville are closer to something like comfort and pleasure, right? We're the city of bourbon, the city of the derby. We love our parties. We love our comfort. But we serve a Lord who said, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you cannot have any part in me. What do we want most? Do we want most God and his kingdom? Do we want most to know him, to be faithful in the tasks he's given to us? Or are there other things we want most? It could be an opportunity for us to repent. 
We can also grow in humility. Again, just understanding that God is infinite and we will never plumb the depths. And there's a humility in, in how we speak about God, knowing that he is far beyond us. So we see a model here for future kings in Solomon. But what's interesting is Solomon is not just a model for future kings. The chronicler is painting him out to be an ideal. And we see is, as the chronicler is doing this, what he's really pointing us to is not David and Solomon, but he's pointing us forward to the king, King Jesus. This brings us to our third point. Now you ask me, how do you know Solomon is pointing forward to Jesus? And I'll give you some evidence for that. First, if you remember, God had promised David, I'll give you a son, I'll establish his kingdom forever, and I'll be a father to him. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, that is partially fulfilled in Solomon. Solomon is David's son, his king, but it's not fully fulfilled. And it's clearly pointing forward to a future king who would fulfill it in a way that Solomon never would, and that would be Jesus. And so we know coming into this that Solomon is, in some ways, acting as a foreshadowing of Jesus. But second, again, the chronicler is painting out the ideal of the king of Israel in a way that neither Solomon nor David were. What's interesting about how Chronicles writes the history of Israel is it leaves out all of the sin and dysfunction of David and Solomon. Bathsheba and Uriah, not mentioned. All of the ways that Solomon failed, not mentioned. For instance, when Kings tells a story of, of Solomon asking for wisdom, there's a little detail that the chronicler leaves out, which is that right before this, David had married a princess of Egypt. Even though God had explicitly forbidden Israel from marrying foreign women or men, because they would, because they would bring their foreign gods with them and they would lead Israel astray. And if you know the story of Solomon, that's exactly what happened. He married some unbelievable amount of women, many of them were foreign, and they brought foreign gods with them, and towards the end of Solomon's life, he began to worship other gods. He compromised. Neither David nor Solomon live up to the ideal that the chronicler is painting of this king, and so what the chronicler is doing is here, it's not saying, when, he, when he's writing to the exiles, he's not saying look back to David and Solomon, because they didn't even fulfill this. He's saying look forward to the future ideal king who's going to come. Jesus Christ the one who is truly zealous for worship. There's a story in the Gospel of John, verses two, sorry, chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, where Jesus comes to a temple, comes to the temple. And when the Passover was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and money changers seated at their tables. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove out all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those selling doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus' zeal for the worship of God startled his disciples, who had seen some crazy things walking with Jesus. But his zeal for his father's glory was so great that it startled them. Jesus was zealous for God. And unlike Solomon, Jesus remained zealous for worship until the end. He spent the last few days of his life teaching, where? In the temple. Jesus was the one who was truly zealous for worship in a way that Solomon did not live up to. Second, Jesus was the one who was truly wise. If you remember way back a year and a half ago, when we started our Gospel of Luke series, in Luke chapter 2, verses 52, it describes Jesus growing up like this, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. One of Jesus' 
attributes, characteristics, is that he was wise. And again, if part of wisdom is, is, is caring about, is wanting to be faithful to God and what he's given to us above all things, wanting God above all things, well, again, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus at one point says to those following him, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus draws such a close association between him and the desires of his Father. He's like, it's the same. I can't do anything that the Father doesn't want me to do. Jesus, above all, wants to glorify his Father. And he remains, again, wise until the end. Jesus is the ideal king. The chronicler is telling the exiles, look for this one to come. It won't come for 500 years, but the ideal king will come. Now, here's, here's the thing. If Jesus just came as the ideal king to be an example, that would be the greatest despair of all. But he didn't come to be an example. He came to be a deliverer. And this is what differentiates Christianity from all the religions, the ones that I've studied, anyways. Which is that typically religions have this exemplary figure, a person who does great things, lives a great life, has great teachings. And the religion organizes around him. And this figure serves as an example for all the rest of history. Be like this exemplary figure. Learn his or her teachings. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't come to give us an example. And if you get anything out of this morning... Hear this. Jesus' life and death were not chiefly exemplary, but substitutionary. Jesus came to give us an example, yes, but chiefly that was not the main point. The main point was to be a substitute for us. When Jesus came as the perfect ideal king who was perfectly wise and perfect in his worship, it was not just to be an example for us, it was to be a substitute for us. Think of it like this. For those crazy people for whom 26.2 miles is not long enough to run, there is another thing called an ultramarathon, which is 50 miles. For all those who have very serious mental health issues and choose to run these things. Now, if I said, okay, guys, after church today, you're going to go home, get your workout clothes, come back, and we're going to run an ultramarathon together. <laughs> I'm not sure there's any one of us that would finish it. Like, I was thinking, maybe Sean, he's got a lot of endurance. Maybe Ethan, they might, like, crawl across the finish line. I think the rest of us, like, we would collapse long before the end. And so when we see that Jesus came and lived the perfect life, it's not like, well, Jesus, he ran the ultramarathon in his six-minute miles. He ran it perfectly. Wow, now go do it. That's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did is he came to the point where we collapsed, whether that's mile 10, mile 20, mile 30, and he finishes the race for us. He runs what we can't run. And then we receive the rewards of running that race that we never ran and that we couldn't run. That's what it means when Jesus Christ comes and lives a perfect life. His life and death were not exemplary, they were substitutionary. So this means that our worship, if we're honest with ourselves, is often cold. I mean, how many times do we sing songs that are so rich and beautiful and, and we're just, we're bored, we're distracted, think about all the other things. But if we're in Christ, if our faith is in Jesus, if we're following him, if we've received his forgiveness and love, then when God looks at us, he sees the zeal that Jesus showed in the temple. 
or our wisdom. You know, we're constantly tempted to love other things more than God. Calvin once said that the human heart is an idol factory. We just make idols to, to long after other than God. But if we're in Christ, if our faith is in Jesus, if we're trusting in him and following him, then when God looks at us, he sees the undivided devotion and love of Christ, not our own failings. Jesus Christ is the king who delivered us by substituting his perfect life for our very imperfect life, substituting his death for the death we deserve. And this is why for for a Christian, the first response when we encounter Christ is never a deed or an action, right? Because Christ is living the life we can't live. The first response for a Christian is always worship. Worship the king who lived for us, died for us, who substituted his life for ours. Let's pray. Jesus, I wish I could I wish I could hold you up better. But your kingdom's not limited by my weakness. May your kingdom advance in the hearts of all our people, advance in our city, advance around the world. May we know you as the one who not only lived a perfect life, but lived it on our behalf. That when our faith is in you, we have no shame, we have no guilt, we have no condemnation. When we approach our Father in heaven, he does not disappoint it in us because he doesn't see us, he sees his Son. May we resolve to be done with sin we will not engage in that which put our Lord on the cross. May we resolve in our hearts to be yours and yours alone. We pray this in the name of our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.